Today we are covering Exodus 3. If you were here last week, we covered Exodus 12, and so we've broken a critical rule of narrative reading. We've read out of order. But I did that for a reason. Last week was Easter, and it was better for us to cover the Passover lamb, having everyone's mind already on Easter and the work that Jesus did. But there were a lot of things that were left unsaid last week about Exodus 12. And one of the things was, you may have wondered, the you know, the the Israelites took all the gold and silver out of Egypt when they left, and what's that about, and where'd that come from? Well, that was prophesied by God beforehand in, in, in Exodus 3, and we're going to come back and see what's going on in this story that is, that is just laying the ground for, groundwork for what we saw last week. And like last week, we, we had kind of touched on this idea that... Um, it's not just people who represent Jesus, but it's also situations and things or objects. Um, you know, there's that game 21 questions. Is it a mineral? Is it a vegetable? Or is it a animal? And uh, there's, there's sometimes where, you know, it's one of those. Um, it's not just a person, but it's, it's actually a thing, an object. And so this, this week, we're really the three main points we're going to look at today in this passage is what is this idea about the angel of the Lord? What does that mean? And and what, what's a Christophany? That might be a new word for some of you. Um, we're also going to look at the name and the nature of God, how God's name and his nature are always tied together. Every time he declares his name, he describes his nature and reveals an element of himself. And then we're also going to look at this idea of elemental Christology, that is, what it means to be a Christian. Um, that's really where we started this series off in, in, in uh, episode zero, if you want to call it an episode or, or part zero. Um, that really, <clears throat> if you haven't heard that, if you weren't here at the beginning, I really would encourage you to go listen to that one. You can see Jordan. But this idea of the angel of the Lord might be a new concept to some of us. In Exodus 3.2, Moses actually wrote the Pentateuch. And so this is Moses writing about Moses. Um in Exodus 3.2, it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him, or Moses, uh, whenever you see brackets in a quote, that just means they've resolved a pronoun, or they've put in a pronoun. So those brackets are just my work. But they, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush, and Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Verse 3, so Moses said, I must turn aside and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. Okay, so Moses is walking along, he's got his sheep, there's a bush, it's on fire, and it's not consumed. And Moses sees it, kind of, and then he says to himself, I will now turn and see this amazing sight, why the bush is not consumed. Okay? And... In verse 2, it says the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the midst of the verse. Okay, so in verse 4, it now says, When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Verse 6, Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, what what these six verses have just said is that the angel of the Lord is equal to God. And that might seem a little weird. What, what are we doing? This, I thought this was Christianity. We're, we're saying an angel is equal to God. No, God created the angels. But the word angel is a very confusing subject. Um, 
this is a biblical way of saying that the angel of the Lord is none other than God himself. In verse 2, it says the angel of the Lord is in the midst of the bush. And in verse 4, it says God is in the midst of the bush. So, angel of the Lord is maybe a confusing phrase, but it's actually... um, for Hebrew-minded people who come to know Christ, it makes a lot of sense because this Hebrew word, which I'm about to butcher, uh, malach, is, uh, it literally means angel or messenger or literally just one who is sent. So this is someone, if uh, an apostle is a Greek word for a sent one or, or someone who is, is uh, a delegate. So if I, if I wanted someone to do business for me while I'm out of town, I would give him authority and I may give him like my credit card and or like a notary or a, a, you know, maybe power of attorney paper or something like that. And I would send him to do my, my business or to do my work on my behalf. And so in that example, um, even though we wouldn't use this word in modern English, that person would be an apostle or they would be filling an apostolic function. And so this word that means angel also just means messenger or sent one. It doesn't necessarily mean a created being who was created in, you know, in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. When it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on to describe the earth, but it doesn't describe how, what God did in the heavens. But the angels created in, in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, this word does not necessarily mean that the person it's describing is one of those. And we're going to see that take place um, in Jesus's explanations of who he is. But this is none other than this concept of a Christophany. And um, we've been looking in this series at Old Testament pictures of Christ, and there are explicit mentions and references to Christ. So Christophany is, is just an appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus in some sort of human form, whether it's slightly veiled or partially veiled, and it happens to be in the Old Testament. Among theologians, there's a lot of dispute about which places there are Christophanies versus theophanies, that is, God's there. Um, there's, there's a situation with Abraham where there's three guys and then one guy and then, and then three guys again. And it's really, it's really beautiful, but there's a lot of dispute. And so if you go to some theologian and you ask him if this particular phrase is, or passage is a, is a Christophany, um, you, you, there would be some disagreement, but in most circles, there are just a number of things that have to uh, take place. First of all, the angel of the Lord has to either receive worship or be identified as God and not rebuke the person. And we know that is the case because there are specific examples when someone bows down to the angel and then the angel says, don't worship me, I'm a created being just like you. And in this situation, Moses removes his feet in act of worship and bows down to the ground and the angel does not rebuke him. And so in, in the book of Revelation, where you see you see John, the revelator, or the, John the apostle, at one point he bows down to an angel and the angel says, don't bow down. And then the other time he bows down to one like a son of man is that, is that phrase in, in Revelation 1, I think it's verse 7. And he, he actually bows down to him and that person does not say to John, don't worship me. And so there's, there's a clear biblical pattern that the angel of the Lord does not uh, tell someone to stop worshiping and he does not reject the title of the name of Yahweh or the name of God. But other times when angels are sent, 
those angels rebuke people from worshiping them. So that's a helpful way for us to know what is going on in this situation. But in the midst of this story, we're beginning to see God actually declaring his name. Over and over again in the scripture, we've heard his name as Elohim or Yahweh. And this is a time where God actually describes to someone what his name is. And God's name always reveals something about his nature or his character. And in this story, God declares to Moses who he is based on the relationship that he has had with this group of people. In Exodus 3, 6, he describes himself as, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So not only is he describing himself as the God of Moses' father, but also his father's fathers, all the way back through the line of, of Hebrews who came down to, to Egypt. And in Exodus 3.14, he goes on to say, I am who I am, which is his name, I am. And so he's, he's describing himself, he's describing this self-existent, self-sustaining phrase of I am in the context of how he's been relating to his people. So in the midst of God declaring his name, he connects it to his attributes and his way that he lives with people. And then he follows this up with a summary statement of why he's doing this. In Exodus 3.16, he describes why he is doing this with the, the Hebrews to bring them out of Egypt. He says, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Many people think God of the Old Testament is this really mean God who just likes to kill people. And Exodus 3.16 is a full frontal assault to that idea. God continues and says in verse 17, So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. God is not just self-existent or self-sustaining. That is, God is not just I am, but he's also good. And we, we're going to see this in a few weeks when Moses gets back up to Mount Horeb um, And here's God declare his name. But not only that, God says in verse 21, I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. This money that the Hebrews receive from plundering the Egyptians when God releases all the plagues on them, and yet God still gives the the Hebrews favor in the sight of Egyptians, that money is going to be used for a lot of good things in the wilderness, which we may or may not touch on. But needless to say, at one or two times, they buy water and they buy some wells, and it really, really helps. And so God is declaring himself in the context of what he's going to do in bringing plagues against Egypt or against the evil ones. He's also going to bring a, a blessing on the righteous. So with that in mind, this is the same way that Christ has established his church. Suffice it to say, we do not have enough time to go into all of the ways in which Moses parallels the apostles and the the Israelites parallel the church, but the church also receives a blessing. And in the midst of of this uh, story, this narrative that's unfolding, in the Gospels, we see Jesus mirroring this language of 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 Yahweh that Yahweh used to describe himself to Moses. And this is where we're we're moving really into the heart of the message, the elemental Christology. That is, what does it mean for you to be a Christian? When you claim to be a Christian, you're saying, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And 
by you saying you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're saying you believe what Jesus said about himself, and therefore you live in in the revelation of that, or you live and orient your life around the fact that Jesus said a certain thing or two. It's not just that we do good unto others. It's not just that we follow the golden rule. The Buddhists follow the golden rule, or at least they claim to. Uh, Humanists follow the golden rule, or at least they claim to. We're not just about moral differences. We're about worship differences. And Jesus is setting this up in, in the book of John. Jesus proclaims his position as deity, speaking in the exact same language that Yahweh or God, Yahweh is just another name for God, has used to speak to his people. That is, he uses the language of the scriptures, which are a historically accurate record of real true events. Jesus, his proclamations of his deity, his position as deity, are most clearly seen in the I am statements in the book of John. Now, we're not going to cover all 21 of them uh, because we would be here till uh, five, and I've got to go somewhere at five. So we're just going to cover a few of them. But each time that Jesus is making this statement of I am, he is specifically calling back to this relationship. And we've already looked at at John the Baptist time and again, how in the book of John, John said, I'm not worthy to untie the sandals of the one who comes after me because he is greater than I am because he existed before me. John the Baptist is declaring Jesus to be pre-existent because everyone knew that John the Baptist was born before Jesus was. And John the Baptist stating that Jesus existed before John existed means that Jesus existed before he was born. So John the Baptist is not only claiming that Jesus is pre-existent, but that he was also incarnated. That is, Jesus existed before his birth. And so there is only one who exists before coming about into the world, and that's God. In the midst of these statements, we're going to see here at the end, we're going to read through a, a passage in John 5 where Jesus is fully explaining all that we're kind of setting up and getting ready to learn here today. But in the midst of these, in the midst of this, Jesus makes some I am statements in the book of John that are very important for us to know. And they hammer home this idea that Jesus existed in the old covenant and was, and was symbolized and, and foreshadowed and prophesied of. Jesus said in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That's describing communion, but it's describing it in the context of the manna that comes down in the wilderness. Jesus doesn't say, I'm like that manna. He says, I am the bread which has come down from heaven. In John eight twelve, then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, echoing the language of John chapter 1. In John 8, 23, Jesus said, and he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. In John 8, 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, and here this is the key verse, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. In John 10, 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out 
and fine pasture. What that means going in and out is, is, is describing the union and the communion that the believer has in Christ. This is talking about uh, the fact that in the Psalms, David says of Yahweh that he knows my going in and my coming or my going out and my coming in. This is describing your daily life. Jesus is saying, if you know me, if anyone enters through this door, then you will find life and will be saved, and you'll you'll have life in the midst of your going in and coming, going out and coming in. In John ten eleven, Jesus says, "I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep." John ten thirty six, Jesus responding to the Pharisees says, "Do you say of him who the Father sanctified and sent into the world?" You are blaspheming because I have said I am the Son of God. We're beginning to see this language that Jesus is saying he is the sent one, which is the same language as we saw in this phrase, the angel of the Lord or the sent one of the Lord. So if you understand the concept of Jesus being God, then his work on the cross becomes infinitely valuable to you. If you don't, it doesn't mean much. It just becomes a moral uh, example or a way that we should lay down our life for our fellow man. But if you understand that Jesus is deity, that is, if you understand that Jesus is one with the Father, that he is Yahweh, then and then you understand that the pre-existent, self-sustaining one died on your behalf and received the wrath that was coming toward you then Jesus's work on the cross becomes magnificent in your eyes and it's beautiful and it becomes the source of joy and sustaining power for your life. If you don't understand that Jesus is deity, then it really doesn't make sense. Why did he have to die? If Jesus was good and he was a good man and he died in my place, how does that work? But if you understand that Jesus is deity, then his work being placed on your account by faith that becomes infinitely valuable. Not only does the cross become infinitely valuable for for those who don't know the Hebrew scriptures, but without understanding Jesus being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, then the context of the Old Testament doesn't make any sense either. And the New Testament being placed after the Old Testament doesn't mean anything unless Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so not only is it meaningful to those who aren't Hebrew-minded, or they aren't Judeo-Christian in worldview, or they aren't uh, Jewish in their actual practice. But if Jesus is the fulfillment, it's not only that for the, the Greeks, but it's also fulfillment and wisdom for the Hebrew who comes to faith. And so the for us in our lives, some of us will meet people who are Jewish, and you you will have an ability to help them understand the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy being done in the person and work of Jesus if you get the point of this series. And not only that, is as you describe the Old Testament to unbelievers, those who haven't been converted or those who didn't grow up in church, the Holy Spirit will honor your work because that is the work of the Holy Spirit, is to exalt Jesus and to reveal him in the scriptures. So, With that, we're going to close with Jesus's words about himself in John 5 that describe what he's doing in coming. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, it's John 5, starting in verse 18, going through, I think, the end of the chapter. 
This is Jesus's assertions of deity is what led the Jews to kill him. What happened that we we celebrated what happened two weeks ago in in uh, in in Jesus entering into Jerusalem and receiving praise and receiving the adoration and worship that they were shouting as they were shouting Hosanna and waving the palm branches. And then the next week we celebrate him rising from the dead. But the reason that Jesus was killed is because he was connecting himself to everything that the Old Testament said. And and he explains that in these verses. So picking up in John 5, verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his father, making himself equal with God. Verse 19, therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. Verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me He has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death and into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you might be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice nor at any time seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him who he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. 
If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your, set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how, you, how will you believe my words? Jesus is saying all of that to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were rejecting him and were rejecting his claims of deity. And he's saying that Moses wrote of him time and again in the Old Testament. And he's also saying that John the Baptist's testimony about him was true, but the testimony that Jesus did in doing the works of the Father, that is, destroying the works of Satan, destroying sickness, death, evil, sin, demons, those works that Jesus did testify about who he is and his good nature. And so in the midst of all of this, Jesus is using the language of the Old Testament, and he is fully asserting that he is God. And so the final statement of I am that we'll look at in John eight twenty four. the gospel, if you could read it in one word, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The, the, the foundation of the gospel is believing that Jesus Christ is God. And if you come to know that, that's because the Father has opened your eyes to it. So let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you for your son. We ask that he would become everything to us, that he would become magnificent, that we would see him in every situation with our brothers and sisters. We ask that you would let us use our imagination to understand the great scenes in Ezekiel and Isaiah and Revelation, that we would see Jesus high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple, and that we would exalt him with every moment of our lives. God, we ask you that we would come to know and savor Jesus as Christ, both Lord and Christ, that we would understand that he is both Yahweh and the Messiah. In Jesus' name, amen.